This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Prophet's Alibi, and the author is Timothy J. Korzep. And Tim joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tim. Hi, Steve. Good to have you with us. Uh, what a tale this is. It's a page-turning thriller. We're talking about this. This is what you write. The President of the United States has been abducted. While meeting with other world leaders in a unified Europe of the future, President Marge Hayden is among the members of the elite G10 taken captive by militants who crash a peaceful inaugural luncheon. The terrorists, led by a mysterious man called the Prophet, now have control of some of the most powerful people in the world. Well, that sounds like it could really happen. In today's world, it's quite possible. So at the time, it was uh, the mid-90s when I was living in Vienna, Austria, and every day in, in route to work, I would cross over the Reichsbrook and look off to the left, and there, towering above the Danube River, was the United Nations complex. And I thought to myself, what a what a terrific venue for a hostage takeover scene. And um, that was that was the seed of it. I didn't really have the legs to the story yet, but that's where the uh, the story had its birth, if you will. And I had to wait for a little bit of history to to take place to you know formulate the story. Well, you say if the readers love Jason Bourne or Dr. Uh, uh, Jack Ryan, uh, they're going to love this book. They should like this one. This is a, a page out of uh, Robert Ludlum or Tom Clancy. Um, it's a pretty fast-paced thriller um, involving... Uh, uh, a Jason Bourne, a lady born, if you will. Um, although someone of this nature cannot be uh, trained in the Navy SEALs or anything like that in real life, only in the movies, um, she definitely has a, um, a child of the Black Ops program. And uh, she's a personal attache of the president, the first female president of the United States, and a first independent president, I might add. And her name is Sylvia Jensen, and like you pointed out, she's trained in anti-terrorism and modern combat. So this lady is a tough lady. She's a tough lady. Part of that came from her, um, her youth. She was a child of an admiral in uh, Annapolis, and she had a very, very troubled youth. Her parents had slated her for, for um, yeah, officer school, but she, she opted to uh, go the, uh, the tough guy approach. Um, eventually going out into covert ops throughout the Middle East. And she may be the world's only chance at a peaceful resolution with all these leaders being kidnapped, abducted, and, and uh Tell us about this group, uh, this power-hungry threesome that she's up against. Well, she, she was caught in the wrong place, perhaps, at the right time. Uh, but she happened to, into a scenario with this trilogy of power, if you will. Uh, the Hong Kong-based trading company, Pak Lee & Company. Uh, the the London-based group who shall remain nameless at the moment, and, of course, Gregor Heinrich, a former currency and precious metals trader out of Bundesbank. Now, he, at the moment, has taken his shop and set up shop somewhere out in the Maldive Islands. But the three are in constant communications, and in a world of, of today's technology, are 
sinked in at any given moment. And they've taken a huge position and a huge speculation in the gold market and gold futures market, which is very much part of today's market. Uh, gold, if you will, right now has probably exceeded its, its intrinsic value, but gold still is a great hedge in a scenario like this. Any times of uh, global, global crisis, uh, gold, oil, defense stocks all shoot through the roof. Safe haven. Well, you have to make things very realistic. Uh, how accurate would you say your financial speculations are in the book? I think we're uh, spot on at the moment. I think it's, uh, God forbid, something like this should happen. But we're sitting at a, a plateau right now where gold could, could conceivably strike these prices that I speak of in, in the novel if something like this were to happen. And they could hit overnight. And you also talk about certain government policies. Uh, are these accurate as well? These are absolutely accurate. These are declassified government policies uh, from the 60s, 70s um, that cause one to question some of the events of 9-11. Uh, in writing this book, uh, there, there are an awful lot of conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11 uh, on both sides of the fence. And, and within the book, I had to take both sides of that argument and lend credibility to both of those sides. And I hope I've done so. And in the, in the, the instance of the terrorist POV point of view, I had to support that through these de declassified U.S. policies. Um, of course, they're available to anybody who wants to search on the Internet. What I'm speaking mostly of is uh, Operation Northwoods. Now, what can you tell us about this mysterious man called the Prophet? The Prophet, on first glance, on first appearance, is the ringleader of this rogue group that's taken control of the G-10 leaders. The Prophet is extremely polished, however. He's almost... He, he's, he's the anti amongst the group uh, that is taking the, the hostages. Uh, he, he is someone who doesn't want to... This is a conflict. He doesn't want to see bloodshed. However, he loves, he loves to create chaos. Chaos creates money. Chaos creates the spike in gold spike in derivatives, anything like that, any defense stocks, again, oil speculation, that sort of thing. Well, even though this is called fiction, you actually believe that this conspiratorial uh, situation could really happen? Again, God forbid they should take over the, uh, the G-10, but um, you put a stranglehold on all the, the power the 10 most powerful people in the world, and the sky's the limit. depends on what the vehicle is. If there's a corner on the market of gold and they can create a, a squeeze, well, then gold is the recipient of the, or the beneficiary of the, uh, the price hike for oil or anything, really. Well, besides... Stories drive markets. Besides Vienna, where else does the story take place? story takes place in London, Washington, D.C., Hong Kong, the Maldives. Little, uh, there's a brief moment in uh, Milan, Italy, and, of course, a little bit of a financial scare in the Boston, greater New England area as well. So these places uh, you're familiar with? I've lived in every one of them. I know them well. What seems to be a typical theme in the story? You might be taking the readers down a road that people say, hey, I know where this is going, but all of that changes very quickly in the 11th hour. Indeed, it does. Indeed, it does. And while the story may seem somewhat typical and predictable, predictable in, in a sense, goodbye bad guy sense, it really changes in the 11th hour when all of the bad guys change colors, if you will. And I'm not going to give that away to you entirely now, <laughs> Steve. You're going to have to read to the end for that one yourself. 
Well, exactly. When we wouldn't want you to give away everything. No, no. This is this is has a, a a great stage also for a sequel, doesn't it? I needed. I had the opportunity to, to end this book um, with with completion or or set it up for the sequel, which ultimately there is one. Anyways, it's already in the works, and I think uh, the way this book ends, I think it sets up beautifully. And because of your professional experiences along the way, you even have some connections to the big screen. We could literally see this. Uh, we, feel, we feel very confident in the ability to get this to the big screen. Got very close to a film deal on the first two books I've written, Final Approval and The Chondritic Crisis. And I, I don't doubt that this one's going to get a lot of film attention. It moves fast, and it's hold on to your seats. So besides the President of the United States, uh, Marge Hayden, uh, do we get to know some other leaders very well, world leaders? You definitely do. You definitely do. Marge Hayden might be the showcase in here. Marge Hayden, I modeled her after people think it's Hillary Clinton. It's not at all. It was probably Elizabeth Dole. Um, I admired her a lot uh, back Ten some odd years ago, and I thought she was really going to be the first woman president, and uh, didn't didn't turn out to be the case. But um, character remains intact, and I, I think I've made a point. She's not a Tea Party candidate, um, but uh, the Canadian Prime. Um, actually, I had uh, stolen a name of a friend of mine to uh, to uh, uh, saddle him into that role. And I think he uh, he loves his role. And do we have some any of the leaders that are captured? Do they have any tie to these terrorists? Seemingly not. <laughs> okay. Seemingly not. Seemingly not. All right. Good question. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was letting my mind wander here in a plot like this. I thought, oh, there's all kinds of different right. directions you could go. Well, in in a in a power-crazed world, uh, any of these components could cross at one point in their careers or another, correct? That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, give us some uh, closing thoughts about your book. Well, I would, um, again, invite anybody who, who if you like uh, Jason Bourne, you're going to love Sylvia Jensen. If you like, um, if you like Hillary Clinton, you're going to like Marge Hayden. Um, I, I think you just got to get out and, and buy this book and put your seatbelt seat on. It's going to hit you fast, and uh, you're going to love the ride. The title of the book, The Prophet's Alibi. That's an interesting title, The Alibi. So is there something we should know about the title right now? I think uh, you're going to find out what that alibi is in page 236. <laughs> All right. Well, Timothy, Timothy J. Korzep. Tim, tell us how to get your book. Yeah, the book is available now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iUniverse, uh, hardcover, softcover, and Kindle and Nook. Well, thank you, Tim. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes. 
all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Infocasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Infocasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, War Ready, In My Father's Shadow. And the author is Mary Lou Darst. And Mary Lou joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Mary Lou. Hello, Steve. Well, this is quite a journey, a journey through your younger years, especially. Your father was in the military. We'll get into the details, but... Let me read what you have written, just a few things, so everyone gets an overview of what we're going to focus on. You say this, This is the story of my early life as a military dependent in the years following World War II and the Korean War, including details about the places we lived and the people we met. You also say this, Themes in your book... We have the effect of war on a person's psychology, the effects of a soldier's war experience on his family, and relationships between U.S. military personnel and their families and citizens of countries the U.S. has invaded. There's a lot here. There is a lot here. (laughs) Yes, it's basically these early years, how old were you when you were moving around so much? Well, um, I was five and six when we lived in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I went to the first grade there. And then we moved to Virginia, and I was seven and maybe eight when we moved to Houston, and my father left for the Korean War. We didn't know he was going to Korea, though, until after he died. We didn't know he'd been there. And then he was stationed in Nara, Japan, and we joined him in Nara, and I was 10 years old, and... 10 and then 11 when we lived in Nara, Japan. And then uh, we came back and lived in Lampasas, Texas, and I was 12 and then turned 13. And then we moved to Munich, Germany, and I was 13 when we arrived and 16 when we left. And um, that's when the book, I ended the book there when we came back from Germany. How much was your father affected by what he saw and what he went through? Well, that's a really good question, and that's uh, kind of the underlying theme of the book. Um, I read my father's diary again while I was writing the book and took quotes from his diary and inserted them in the book. And, Steve, as an adult looking back, I can see now that he was very affected by World War II in his early years as a young man fighting in England and going over uh, on a ship, merchant marine, a British merchant marine ship built for 800 men, uh, loaded with 3,000 men. Um, now I can see that he really probably never recovered from those early experiences. And, um, you know, he was a warrior and a soldier. And he expected everyone around him to be the same way. And um, so, you know, the rest of the world had moved on, and here was this soldier that was still seeing the world through the eyes of a warrior and a soldier. What kind of a relationship did you have with your father? 
Well, I've had a, a good relationship with my father. I love my father, but I was afraid of him. Um, he was not easy to live with. Um, he had very high expectations for me and my brother, um, for my mother. Things were done. It was supposed to be. There were just no excuses, no mistakes. You know, when something was supposed to be done, it was supposed to be done immediately. There was no waiting. There was never any gray matter. You know, it was everything was either black or white. There was no in between. No excuses. You know. So just like he lived in the military during right. the war, right. it was that way at home. Oh, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. Which, which, how did uh, that affect you? Well, um, in a very strict environment, you uh, worry to death about making a mistake and getting in trouble. <laughs> so so you, <laughs> you always have that hanging over your head. You didn't want to make him angry. You didn't want to disappoint. Um, you tried very hard to please, very hard to please, and to always do a good job. Excel um, in school and whatever you do, it just... Those were the expectations to do the best, be the best that you can be, do the best that you possibly can, whatever it is. Failure was never an option. Yes. Whatever, whatever it was, failure was never an option. <laughs> How did yeah. your experiences overseas help define your attitude toward people who uh, didn't speak English? Well, that's a really good question, Steve. Um, I we all found people overseas who were like our families at home. We found we found people all over the world not to be so different, but that it was only language and, and some culture that that differentiated us from the culture we were in. Um, we found very loving people, and um, especially in Japan, our. Uh, our landlords, Mr. and Mrs. Kimoto, and uh, his mother, Mama San, was Mama San was very close to me, and I I just weep when I talk about her because I loved her so much. Um, I miss my grandmother more than anybody would ever know, and hearing English, and um, she was very kind. Of course, she didn't speak a word of English, but she um, would talk to me in this kindest, most loving way, and took me shopping, and every Saturday morning she had me for tea at her house, and it was just Mama San and me, and I, I really, I really needed that. I missed my family, my grandmother so much, and, uh, but later when we moved to, um, and, and of course I have to say about Hotsey, little Hotsey, our maid, was like a member of our family, and she also took me places, and, um, was like a part of our family. So <laughs> that answers part of your question. But when we lived in Germany, in Munich, we also uh, became very close to a German family, uh, Helga and Gerhard Holderman, Mr. and Mrs. Holderman, and, and Gerhard's mother, Mrs. Holderman. They were very, very kind to us. And, you know, we invited them to spend holidays with us, and likewise, we spent some holidays with them. And um, So... That I hope that answers your question. Yes, well, it, it would have a profound impact on these pe that on yourself on relating to people that in many ways yes. were so different, and yet at the same time, like you say, uh, you right. know, they treated you like family. Right, and then to further answer your question, to flash forward to the present, um, I taught English as a second language for um, maybe ten years. You know, I, I did teach for a long time, and then I got a master's in multicultural studies, and I did teach English as a second language, which I loved because I met people again. It was like traveling again. So maybe that answers your question better. Now, there was a place in Germany in 1958 you visited. Uh, it's pronounced Bercher Garden? Bercher's Garden. Bercher's Garden. Now, and, and you say this, you say it was easy to see why Hitler liked this place. Oh, my God. You cannot believe the beauty. You cannot believe the beauty. I had never seen 
I had never seen anything so beautiful in my life. I was 15 years old. And we're on this bus, Mercedes bus, specially built to, to go straight up the mountain, but you're straight up going in curving S's <laughs> to get to the eagle's nest, to get to the top. The, the st- mountain streams, this beautiful water, the rocks, the trees, and then way up at the top, the clouds surrounded us. Um, you could still see the mountaintop, and, you know, an eagle might fly across. And, uh, it was just breathtaking, just breathtaking. I, I had never experienced anything so beautiful in my life. Well, you went from Japan to Ger- then you were in Germany, and then a place that's in the news a lot today, Tripoli, Libya. Yes, we took the Mediterranean cruise while we were in um, in Munich, and um, that was uh, after we we left Naples, Italy, on the ship, and then docked at Tripoli. And what a shock that was! <gasps> Oh, my God, what a shock that was. And this is a long time ago, but it was quite a shock. Um, the heat was just searing at the end of September. And um, as I wrote in the book, the um, the odor of the, the camel the camel in urine in the gutters, it just was overwhelming. And, of course, the first place we... The, tour arranged tour was take us to the camel market (laughs) (laughs) and so the camels were baying and whatever they were not the beautiful cousins that we see camels in the zoo they were not (laughs) these were working camels (laughs) they they were kind of scruffy looking losing their coats and so forth Um, but um, they were all herded there and sometimes the buyer would would be interested in one and like a camel uh, like a cattle man he would go in and you know look at the teeth and feel the bones and and uh, the girth and uh, check the feet and then maybe he would buy it maybe not but we didn't see anybody buying camels on that particular day but the thing that sticks out in my mind as I wrote in the book was the extreme between the poverty and the wealth was unbelievable. There was no in-between. And we saw people just sitting in the gutter, I mean beggars, sitting in the gutter. And the camel urine was just so pitiful. Just, and some were disfigured, had didn't have a hand or a nose or, you know, fingers. It, it just, I had never seen anything like that. It was just, it was horrible. And and then yet the 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 wealth was just you know beautiful it, uh, oasis of uh, homes with dome many many domes on the uh, of the home the the palm and the, they, it, it was quite an extreme difference I'd never experienced anything like that none of us had well you have a quite a chronicle here of and why you tried to deal with the unfathomable expectations of your military father. You you just had all these different experiences in, in places that uh, today, um, well, you know, we're not going to talk about the horror of Dachau or, you know, the, the effects, obviously, the devastating effects of Hiroshima, but uh, you saw it all. Right. Right, we did. Um, my father uh, did want us to see as much of the world as we could whenever we lived someplace. And he always wanted us to know what it was like on the other side, what it was like for the people in the culture where we lived, what, what it was like for them. And um, so that's why he uh, was a strong advocate of travel and we traveled a lot when we were in Europe, and uh, we went to, uh, we drove to Denmark, and uh, then all through, you know, Holland and Belgium and France and Italy. We <laughs> we just traveled as often as possible. But we all uh, often they just got in the car and on the weekends would drive through Bavaria. You know, once we went to, uh, 
we drove to Nuremberg, and <clears throat> excuse me, I wrote about this, and there's a chapter in the book called Nuremberg. Um, we drove and saw Hitler's enormous stadium that he had built, and um, then drove through the very, very narrow streets to get to town, and um, we um, were missing our families quite a bit by that time. We had lived in Munich for 18 months, and uh, as a result we of our uh, assignment there, we lived two years and nine months, which was longer than any place we lived in our lives, and, and my brother and I had lived any place in our lives. Um, but my parents were homesick for their families as well as as we were. <laughs> so long story short, um, we were driving into town, and my father saw a fountain. Uh, this was about Christmas time, it was, uh, or maybe right after. So it was very, very, very cold. Snow everywhere, beautiful but very cold. And my father noticed a fountain with water frozen. It was cascading and it was frozen and very beautiful and behind was a pale yellow building so he paused for just a moment for us to look at that and my mother noticed an old woman walking by in the snow all alone wearing a black coat black scarf and her face was wrinkled and drawn and she said oh look at that woman she just looks so pitiful she said Mary Lou, say something. And my parents depended on me often to, to uh, speak German for them. I studied German. I also studied Japanese, so they depended on me in Japan, too. But So she was very hesitant to get in the car. My brother opened the door, and she eyed the car hungrily, but she was very, very unsure about whether she should get in. Well, she kept staring at us and staring at the car, and it kept getting colder and colder. Finally, she said, yeah, and she, she got in, but she didn't close the door, and she didn't uh, make any, any effort that she was going to close the door. And so my father reached back and to, to grab the handle of the car, and she reached over. She moved over quickly toward my brother and crouched like he was going to hit her, and, of course, he was just closing the door, which he did. Then turned the heat up, and we drove very, very slowly. And my mother said, ask her where she's going. So I asked her in German where she's going, and she said she was going to the train station to see her son. And so my father drove about eight blocks very slow. Well, we passed some groups of people, German people, who stared at her in her car. They just stopped walking and gawked, and she just chuckled, just <laughs> and then after about eight blocks she opened the door to the car and I said to my father she opened the door so he slammed on the brakes quickly we all rolled forward she jumped out but she didn't make any effort to close the door <laughs> she just stood there smiling <laughs> so we all said I'll feed her Zane and waved to her my brother waved and reached over and closed the door when we looked out the back window we thought she might have gone on but she stood there and waved to us until we were out of sight. Hmm. And it, it, was, um, it was a wonderful feeling to be able to have an older person in the car with us, reminding us of a, of a parent for my parents or grandparents for us. And she evidently enjoyed our eight-block ride with us, too. <laughs> so, the title of the book... War Ready, In My Father's Shadow, and the author is Mary Lou Darst. Mary Lou, tell us how to get your book. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, it's available online from iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, and BarnesandNoble.com. Mary Lou, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. It's nice to talk to you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. 
how to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Within Arm's Length. The Extraordinary Life and Career of a Special Agent in the United States Secret Service. And the author is Dan Emmett, and Dan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Welcome, Dan. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, it's a great honor to have you uh, with us. In short, Dan was assigned as a member of the Secret Service to three presidents, uh, both Bush presidents, and of course, uh, President Clinton, and we're going to get into details about that. But you start out talking about what happened to you when you were eight years old, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, just the impact of that, and then setting this goal of becoming a U.S. Secret Service agent. And of course, we all know that special group of people are committed and assigned to give their lives, if needs be, for that president, if necessary. So, obviously, we got not enough time here, Dan, to talk about <laughs> all the things that are in your book, but let me just start with this question. Uh, why did you write it? Yeah, that's, that is a good question. Um, actually, over the years, very few books have been written by former agents, but uh, I felt the need to write the book uh, to counter some of the, the bad journalism that was out there about the Secret Service. Uh, some of the more recent books have not put the service in a, an accurate light, in a good light, and have been, I think, very unfair uh, to the Secret Service. Uh, some of the more recent books have also been nothing more than tell-all books about personal stories, about protectees of the Secret Service. So, I thought that it was possible uh, to write a book strictly dealing with the career of a working agent for 21 years in the Secret Service. And I thought people might be really more interested in that than whether Hillary threw a lamp at President Clinton, which was was uh, asserted in one recent book. Uh, so primarily, that that was my reason for, for coming out with the book. Well, as you start your book, you're eight years old, and President Kennedy is, Kennedy is assassinated. What did you feel? What do you remember about that moment? Like uh, probably like everyone that was old enough to remember that, I remember exactly where I was that day. I was in the third grade. It was a normal Friday afternoon, and as I came out of school, someone said that President Kennedy had been assassinated, and I wasn't really familiar with the words, so I had to ask uh, 
one of my father's uh, delivery men that worked for him in his furniture company uh, who picked me up at school that day what that word meant. And he told me and he, he verified that that was correct indeed that President Kennedy had been assassinated, was dead, and of course was no longer our president. So that had a very profound impact on me. And you decided when that you wanted to be a Secret Service agent. When did that occur? It actually occurred during that weekend. Um, during the course of the weekend, a lot of different things happened. Uh, President Kennedy was flown back to Andrews Air Force Base, and the coffin coming off of the airplane, that was sort of burned into my memory. Uh, then the accused assassin, Lee Oswald, was uh, killed by Jack Ruby on live television. And the, the thing that really sealed it for me, though, was a photograph that came out sometime over the course of the weekend. And that photograph is fairly famous. I know a lot of people have seen it. It depicts Special Agent Clint Hill of the U.S. Secret Service on the back of the limousine after the fatal headshot, doing his best to protect the president and Mrs. Kennedy. It was really that photograph that made the really deep impact on me. And I, I remember seeing it, and I I asked my father, I said, you know, who is that man on the trunk of the president's limousine? What is he doing? And my father explained to me that he's a Secret Service agent. It's his job to, if necessary, be shot or take the bullet for the president in order to keep him alive. And I, I recall thinking, what, what an important job. That sounds like a really, really important job, a really dangerous type of job and something that I'd really like to do someday. And, of course, that picture is in your book. I saw the picture, and it's a very dramatic picture, which certainly would have uh, just remained in the mind of, of a young person, an older person. Now, you started out in the Marine Corps. I did. Um, actually, uh, you know, I had two primary long-term career ambitions in life. One was to become a U.S. Secret Service agent, but the other was to become a commissioned officer in the U.S. military. And uh, I chose the Marine Corps uh, due to the fact that it, it had the uh, physically the toughest uh, training regimen uh, just to get into to the organization and just wanted to really to see if I could uh, survive the training. <laughs> and obviously you survived. <laughs> I barely. Barely. <laughs> on some days. Yeah. Uh, but I did manage to pull through. It's like every moment, right? It's challenging. Practically every moment of every day that uh, that I was undergoing that training. It was, uh, by the end of the day, I wasn't quite so sure if I was going to last even one more day. Now, uh, the CIA came after or the Marine Corps, or it came after your Secret Service agent service? Yeah, the, the sequence was uh, Marine Corps from 1977 until late 1981, and then Secret Service from May 83 until May 2004, and then the Central Intelligence Agency from June 2004 until uh, 2010. Part of a special, you were a special skills officer, which is now a part of the National Clandestine Service, it's called. That's correct. Uh, there are basically four main directorates in CIA. One of them used to be the Directorate of Operations, and they simply changed the name from the Directorate of Operations or the DO to the NCS or National Clandestine Service. It's just, it's just one of the four directorates within the agency. You say in the overall description of your book, you list a number of things uh, that you talk about, that you write about in your book. Uh, one of them is serving on the counter-assault team. Now, what was that? Yeah, the counter-assault team is the U.S. Secret Service version of a counterterrorism unit. It's, uh, it's a very paramilitary type of organization within an organization. It's comprised of primarily former military and former police types uh, who are very good with uh, weapons and tactics. And the stated mission of CAT is to counter any attack on the president from attackers in a known location, rocket attacks, multiple attackers, or automatic weapons fire. Um, their job really is to stay and fight while the working shift that is immediately around the president covers him and evacuates him out of the area. Now, 
different assigned duties when you're within arm's reach of the president. Tell us some of those and give us some examples of uh, some interesting things that happen. Well, the people that are actually within arm's length uh, are the people on the working shift, which I was a member of for for several uh, years. And your job is to cover and evacuate the president. You are literally within arm's length of him. Probably the most challenging thing that we did uh, during my time, uh, this was with President Clinton, was protecting him during his morning runs uh, because President Clinton did not like to run um, in safe environments. He enjoyed running uh, through the streets of downtown Washington during rush hour. <laughs> Which would probably just about stop traffic or what? <laughs> It, it, it would on occasion. Um, you can imagine driving yourself to work in the morning during rush hour and you, you look over to your left or right and you see the president of the United States just running down the sidewalk with his uh, entourage of security. And how many would be with him in such a jaunt? <laughs> uh, that's that's one of those things that uh, I really rather not discuss. Okay. Um, All right. But it, they're probably. Uh, I, I really I tend to stay away from things that would uh, sure. compromise anything that we did at that time or might compromise later on today. So were you able to keep up with him? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can say truth that he never he never passed me. No, he, never he never passed did. you. Even though maybe sometimes you know the the ego of the person leading the run may want to do that, right? Oh goodness, that's now you of course flew on Air Force One. Uh, Constantly? Were you always up there with the president? Well, if you're on the shift that happens to be traveling with him, then yes, you're going to be on Air Force One. If you're, if you're on the trip, but you're not on that particular shift at that moment, then you would travel either commercially or on a military transport aircraft. But uh, say you were working the 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. shift, and he left at 11 o'clock in the morning to go on a trip, then yes, you would fly on Air Force One with him. Now, you talk about a very uh, dramatic, dangerous situation uh, where you were sent to a room where President Clinton was meeting with President Assad of Syria. Tell us about that and, and of course, this dangerous situation that could have occurred. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a little tense that day. Um, President Assad traveled with uh, a great many security people. Um, as I stated in the book, practically everyone in the country that was related to him probably worked for him, and I think he brought them all with him. But, uh, of course, they were all armed, and this gave us great concern to have the President of the United States in such a small room with so many armed Syrians. Um, first of all, we didn't trust them to begin with, but secondly, we knew that in a shootout situation, they were not surgical shooters. Their method was to draw and fire pretty much indiscriminately. So we couldn't have that. Uh, my shift leader assigned me to pre-post into the room, and then if um, if the Syrians drew their Scorpion machine pistols, which is what they were armed with, uh, then I was to neutralize them. That's an interesting term, neutralize them, yes. <laughs> Well, we had an agreement actually with them that their security would not bring weapons into the room. Oh, and, and then they did. They did. Uh, people from that region, you can present something to them like that, and they will generally say, no problem, no problem. <laughs> well, it's no problem for them is right. what they really mean. But they're in fact, they're really not even listening to you half the time. And it's a, just a known trait of their culture that they're not going to follow through on it. So typical of uh, of the Syrians we we went into the room and they were it was obvious to me that they were armed and I could tell from the outline of their jackets what they were carrying and a very dangerous little weapon they had and uh, of course we couldn't permit them to draw those weapons in that room with the president of the United States so that was my job that day to see that that didn't happen now you had another uh, dangerous situation could have been uh tragic, fatal, uh, when you were with President Clinton on a bridge separating North and South Korea. Yeah, that one kind of came out of left field at us. We didn't really expect that, but uh, the president's staff came over one morning and said the president wants to visit what is known as the Bridge of No Return. This was uh, during a time we were visiting South Korea, and the Bridge of No Return is a bridge that runs perpendicular, and it connects North and South Korea. It's the bridge where 
all American POWs from the Korean War were returned. They came across that, as well as the the crew from the USS Pueblo in 1968-69. But uh, North Koreans owned the north end of the bridge, and South Koreans on the southern end. But uh, President Clinton decided he wanted to visit that bridge, and so we we went up there with him, um, of course, and um, when we got there, we realized that the North Koreans were in violation of the agreement that no rifles were allowed in that area. They were armed with their AK-47s and, uh, of course, anticipating they were going to cheat. Uh, we brought along our M-16 rifles. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were ready to do whatever we had to do mm. uh, so that he could, uh, he and the office of the presidency could survive. Mm. One of the themes in your book, I'd like you to make a comment on this, uh, you, you state remaining true to oneself no matter the cost. Yeah. Um, what I mean by that simply is um, a person in any type of career has to come to the con- decision within themselves how much of their own personal beliefs are they willing to compromise in order to climb up the career ladder. Um, I don't think that anyone really makes it to the top of any profession without having to compromise themselves to a certain degree, and that's just a, a given. And there are certain people, stubborn <laughs> individuals like myself, that just refuse to do that. And uh, throughout my career, I was I I was very very reluctant or unwilling to ever to ever do that, to ever compromise what I thought should be. And of course, it was uh, it did not. It's not a career destroyer, but it's it will definitely impede a man from from going up to the upper levels of management. Just in closing, in the uh... About a minute, minute and a half we have left, Dan. Uh, Give advice to those like yourself many, many, many years ago when you decided that you wanted to become part of the uh, Secret Service. Give advice to those who may be thinking about that now. Sure. Uh, The thing that I would say to young people today that are thinking about that line of work is you have to make the decision, first of all, are you willing to take human life? Uh, Secondly, are you willing to sacrifice your own life in, in exchange for that of a politician that you may not like, you may not uh, support his views, you didn't vote for him, yet it's your job, if necessary, to sacrifice your life. And it's they need to keep in mind that it's not for the individual, but it's for the office of the presidency. That's what you're protecting. Um, they also need to take into account the fact that it's going to be very draining on their personal lives, their family lives, because of the separation time, travel time, time away from home. There's a great many personal sacrifices that everyone has to make before going into that line of work, and those are those are just some of the things they should consider, I think. The title of the book, Within Arm's Length, The Extraordinary Life and Career of a Special Agent in the United States Secret Service. We've been talking with the author, Dan Emmett. Dan, tell us how to get your book. Yeah, it, uh, currently it's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and Books A Million if you want to go online. And it's also available through the publisher, iUniverse, uh, small letter I, followed by the word universe. And it's also available in uh, certain uh, Barnes & Noble stores, uh, although right now at this point I'm not sure exactly which ones you could find it in, but uh, they can certainly order it for you if, if you go there and uh, they don't have it in stock. It's also available electronically on Nook, which is uh, Barnes & Noble's electronic uh, version of a book, ebook. Dan, again, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to have you with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much. I, I do appreciate it iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.